Please open your Bibles with me. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, even as we just sang, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. Father, as we come to this point in our gathering where we open your word and just walk through your scriptures, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Lord, give us not only head knowledge of these truths that are here for us, but I pray that you would help us to delight in them and indeed to live them out. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, that you would use me as an instrument to minister this good word to your people. And Lord, we pray that all of this would be for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any, any well-run company or organization is going to have clear job descriptions Uh, Whether they're written out very formally and perhaps have org charts, paint, you know, planted in various places throughout, or whether it's less formal but clearly explained, people know what they're they're doing, and they know what those around them are supposed to be doing. I, I think this brings a level of efficiency, doesn't it? Brings a level of contentment. 
you're content in what you're doing because it's clear that's what you were brought on to do, and you see that other people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It, it, leads, to, it leads to getting a lot done. It leads to a level of, of unity within that company. A lack of clarity here, I think, brings about some of the opposite, doesn't it? It brings about confusion. Who, who's, who's got this? Who, who, who's doing this, right? Uh, it brings about a level of frustration, dysfunction. I would think that it would bring about some of the grumbling and complaining around the coffee pot that you often hear about in a various office. Certainly doesn't move towards unity. And, and I think we can say the same thing in the church, can't we? Right? It's, it's important that we have a sense in the church who does what? Who, who's leading? Who, who's, who's setting direction for the church? Who's leading this ministry? Who's teaching this or that? And thankfully, there's not a lot of guessing. Thankfully, the Word of God speaks to these things. And I invite you, if you're not already there, to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You should have an outline in your gathering guide that kind of shows you how I see this passage laid out. We're going to work through that while we're working through the text together. So I'm going to begin by rereading verses 7 through 10. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Last week, we spent some time here in verses 7 through 10, and I pointed out that, that Paul is using Psalm 68 to make a key point. Psalm 68 pictures the, the triumphant Lord God who has defeated all of His enemies, and now He has with Him all of the spoils of victory. And so, that psalm interpreted through the lenses of how Jesus fulfills this, Paul is saying that through Jesus' incarnation, that's, that's the descending language, and through His resurrection and exaltation, that's the ascending language, Paul's saying through this, Jesus is fulfilling this psalm as He is the conquering, triumphant Lord who has defeated all of His enemies. That's Satan and his minions. You could look at Colossians 2 for that. And then through all of this, like any good conquering king, the picture Paul wants us to have is Jesus sharing the spoils of victory with His people, here spoken of as grace gifts that He gives to each of those who are His. Last week I pointed out that the grace spoken of here in this text is not saving grace. But that, that He covered in a lot of detail back in chapter 2. Here, he's focusing on what we can call serving grace or gifts of grace that he gives to each believer for the good of the whole. And last week, we, we used these verses, verses 7 to 10, as, as a launching pad into a broader study of the other passages that also speak of these gifts of grace or what we often call spiritual gifts. There we dug into, you might recall, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4 along with Ephesians 4. And we saw, 
we saw that these grace gifts, these spiritual gifts, are given to every believer, right? Nobody has all of them, but every believer has at least one. And they're given for a specific purpose. Remember, the text was clear. One of the reasons we wanted to look at all of them is because we just saw this repetitiveness, that they're given for the whole. We're gifted with these spiritual gifts, these grace gifts for the good of the body. And so here, back in Ephesians, I want to make sure we're clear that these spiritual gifts, these gifts of serving grace are given to every single believer. Again, verse 7 in Ephesians 4, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, no believer who doesn't have what Paul's talking about in verse 7. Again, everyone, if you're in Christ, has at least one quote-unquote spiritual gift. No one has all of them. You can get that from a text like 1 Corinthians 12, but everybody has at least one. And in this, we're going to see that God has gifted us for the job He's given us to do. Remember, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul said, for to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's point number one there on your outline. Jesus gives particular gifts of grace, what we call spiritual gifts, to every single believer for the good of the body, for the good of the church. And that's all the time we'll spend on that point because we took the whole week last week to kind of lean in on that. Here we need to proceed on in Ephesians 4, and I want us to see that Jesus not only gives spiritual gifts to every believer for the good of the church, but He also gives gifted leaders for the good of the church. Look at verse 11. He says, He gave, look at that, He's picking up on this given language. Verse 7, grace was given to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, he gave gifts to men. So he's picking up on that. And so verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Picking up again on the language of giving, on the language of gifts that we see above, he says that he gives gifted leaders to the church. And in a few minutes, we're going to look at the relationship between the gifted leaders and the gifted saints. But for now, I want to make sure that we see in verse 11 that the people listed there are gifts to the church. And there's a couple questions that we need to answer before we can really kind of dig into the inner workings of this. First, is Paul speaking of four groups of leaders here in this text, or five? And, and this question stems from the last two there, the shepherds and teachers. And the question is, are those two separate groups, or are they one and the same? And quite frankly, if you read your English translations closely, you can see some of them wrestling with this very thing. So, for example, if you're reading from a NASB, a New American Standard, it actually interprets it for you, and it takes those last two groups together. And I actually agree with how the NASB takes it. They, they, they put the shepherds and teachers together, and the reason they do that is because 
I think it's clear in the original. In the original, there's a definite article in front of each category. So you're reading along in your Greek New Testament, and you see that he gave, definite article, the apostles. Definite article, the prophets. Definite article, the evangelists. Definite article, the shepherds and teachers. It's not definite article, the shepherds, and definite article, the teachers. Thus, most see this fourth group of gifted leaders as your pastors, pivoting off of the word translated here as shepherds. And so thinking in terms of biblical, broader biblical categories, these are your pastors or your elders being described here more in terms of their function, which is, of course, shepherding, leading the church by way of teaching. And so I think it's best that we see that Paul's speaking of four groups of gifted leaders in the church. One, the apostles. Two, the prophets. Three, the evangelists. Four, the shepherd teachers. That said, as we're trying to understand this text and how it works out in our own context, how it works out in the local church, I think we also need to remind ourselves of something that we looked at back when we covered Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. There you might recall that Paul said that as Christians, we are members of the household of God. And he said that the household of God has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We said when we covered it, that's the New Testament prophets. So, so the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And back when we covered that passage, I said that this passage is helpful for our understanding of apostles and New Testament prophets because once the foundation of the church was laid, the apostles and the New Testament prophets died off. And since the foundation was laid and the, and the New Testament was written, there was no more need for apostles and prophets, which is why from a church history standpoint, you don't see apostles and prophets after that. If you then carry that on over to Ephesians 4.11, we understand that with the passing of the apostles and prophets, and now Holy Scripture being once for all delivered to the saints, the two remaining categories that he speaks of to lead the church are the evangelists and the pastor-teachers, or you could say the elders. Now, quickly, who are these evangelists? And this one is honestly challenging as the only other time Paul uses this word is when he exhorts Timothy, who was serving as a pastor, to do the work of an evangelist. And in, in, in the context of exhorting Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, he also tells him, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If we expand it beyond Paul, the words used only at one other place in the New Testament, where Philip in Acts 21.8 is called an evangelist. And so, taking what little we have, if you put these two ideas together, it's probably best to say that the evangelists are those who God gives His gifts to the church as they have a spiritual gift of evangelism. Remember last week we said all of us are called to evangelize, but some have a particular gift of that. So these are those who have that particular gift of evangelism, and thus the Lord uses them tremendously in bringing new people into the church. Sometimes these individuals would also be elders, like the case with Timothy, but other times they're not. No reason to believe Philip was an elder. Regardless, they should be thought of as gifts to the church, 
as God uses such people for regular initial contact with the lost, regular proclamation of the gospel, which is often tied with church planting that we see as such an important aspect of sharing the gospel, right? That being said, as we continue to unpack the passage, we want to go on and think about the relationship between the gifted leaders that we see in verse 11 and the gifted saints spoken of in verse 7. We want to understand how these work together. And verses 11 through 16 lay this out for us. Look back at the text. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here, the first thing that we see is that the gifted leaders equip the saints. Now, sometimes you will hear it argued from this text that these gifted leaders actually do three things. First, they equip the saints. Second, they are the ones who do the work of ministry. And third, they build up the body of Christ. In other words, this line of argument will take all three of the clauses from verse 12 and say that they all apply to the leadership of the church. But I don't think that works with how this text is laid out in the original. And I, and, and I think that for at least two reasons. First, the context. In context, this teaching on you know, these inner workings are kind of sandwiched between this idea of individual believers being gifted for the common good. So, verse 7, grace was given to each, right? Drop down to verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the context itself is pointing to this idea of this this inner working, and then I think this text and the way Paul lays out this verse makes it very clear as well. There's there's actually, in, in verse 11... A different preposition, I know this is a little nerdy, but hang with me. There's a different preposition for the first clause than you have in the next two. And you see this represented in the ESV, for example. He gave the gifted leaders to equip the saints for, different preposition, for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. And by the way, we're now kind of getting into your org charts, if you, if you will. We're digging into the text to help us think through how we operate as a church. And what you see here is that your leaders, that is your pastor teachers or your elders, our primary role, so says Holy Scripture, is that of equipping. It's to equip the saints. Our role as pastors 
is primarily a teaching role. What I'm doing right now at this moment is right in the very center of the bullseye of what I'm supposed to be doing. And if I don't focus here, if I, if I don't prioritize the preparation for this moment every week and the preaching, I would submit to you I would not be being faithful to what it is that I'm called to do. My role is primarily an equipping role, teaching. Included in that would be other forms of discipleship, of course, other forms of teaching, even leading by example at times. Think about Paul saying, come on, follow me as I follow Christ. So the leaders equip, the, the, the pastor teachers, the elders equip the saints. We teach the saints, and the saints then do the work of ministry. The saints then build up the body of Christ. And, and let me just pause here for a minute, because what's being put here before us in Holy Scripture is certainly different than much of what we see in the church. And here I'm thinking of everything from Roman Catholic Church or other high church structures where only the clergy engage in ministry, or also thinking about sort of the modern-day megachurch setting where people are hired for the vast majority of the work that needs to be done. And I think both of these would be out of step with what we see here. Here we see that the leaders and the saints are working together. Here we see what we say in our membership class, that church is a team sport. In fact, in our church covenant, which all of our members sign, we've made a covenant with one another. And one of the things that we promise each other flows right from this passage. We say this, quote, we, not them, not certain ones, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we, notice it doesn't say as the pastors, as we sustain its worship. That's big. It's not just the pastors, not just the staff, not just the hired guns. As we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations, end quote. In other words, we work together. If we don't work together, what we're doing right now doesn't happen. It doesn't. If, for example, at this church, at this moment of time in our church, if people were not here this morning at 8 o'clock before the rest of us showed up, setting up chairs and setting up things, what we're doing right now does not happen. It doesn't. Can't do it. If, if I did not work during the week preparing this sermon, this doesn't happen. If I didn't start my week in my Greek New Testament and then plow through multiple commentary, commentaries later on as the week progressed, if I didn't set aside the entire day of Friday, Friday is my day, I set aside to write a manuscript, if I didn't hold that sacred and set it aside, we wouldn't be here. If I didn't wake up early this morning and pray over this time together and, 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 and work through my manuscript, what we're doing right now wouldn't be happening. 
If, if Andrew Babb and our music team didn't work on songs ahead of time earlier in the week, if they didn't show up this morning and set up and rehearse what we did a few minutes ago wouldn't have happened. If Andrew Cummings didn't send out multiple emails and make calls and texts working with the countless people that are, that are serving, if we don't work together to sustain the worship of this church, we don't worship. But all of this is happening, praise God. We are doing what we're doing. We're working together to sustain the church's worship, and everything that goes into it. And let me just say, what a joy to serve with you, right? What a joy to serve in a church that really does work together like this. I mean, I know set up and tear down is hard. I, I get that it's a sacrifice to miss service every five or six weeks to serve those sitting around you by working in childcare. But, but let me just say, this kind of thing does indeed seem to be what Ephesians 4 is talking about. And if we ever get to the point as a church where we're not all as, as members, as gifted saints serving in multiple ways, and we just start hiring everything out, I think we'd be out of step with what we see here in Holy Scripture. If we get to the point where church becomes a show, and all I do is show up and let the pros run everything, and I get a good sermon, you know, a couple sound bites, and sing a few songs that make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, I think we find ourselves out of step with what the text is teaching us. Now, of course, we're not just talking about set up and tear down. I think there's a way to do all of this, even when we're not doing set up and tear down. And so here, I want to go back for a bit and think about some of the work that the gifted saints are regularly being equipped to do. First, notice that all of us are equipped by the leadership to do the work of service. The, the, the word work, I think, is pretty straightforward in both Greek and English, right? We all have a pretty good sense of what that means. You, you work at something. You, you realize that means you, you put forth effort. And so here I want to focus on what you're equipped to work at. And it's, depending on the translation, the work of service or the work of ministry. In, in Greek, it's diakonios. Which, which, which might sound a little bit familiar to your ear because it's in the same word group that we transliterate our word deacon, which of course is helping out with all sorts of physical needs to free up the pastors to, to lead the church, right? And so this word diakonios is actually quite broad, uh, can be used for deacon type of ministry, but also ministry of the word. And so the, the word work that, that he's talking about, what we're to work at, can be everything from basic serving of tables, you think of Acts 6, to here doing child care or set up and tear down. It can be ministry in, in, in people's lives, helping those who are struggling, it, it, instructing other believers, right? Because individual saints have gifts of teaching, so instructing other believers, obviously under the instruction of the elders, if we're taking this seriously, and we could go on and on. This is very broad. Think, think back to, say, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4 that we looked at last week, thinking about some of the giftings we see that gifted saints have. You could think of serving, teaching, giving, evangelism, hospitality, and so on and so forth, all, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, are for the common good. And so the picture here that Paul's painting is your gifted leaders are equipping 
teaching gifted saints so that the saints can and should engage in ministry. And what's more, we see in the next line that all of this is for the building up of the body. And this is really cool. Back in Ephesians 2.20, we were told, using a different metaphor, that we are, the church is the household of God being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Here then we see that all of us are actively engaged in the work of building up the household of God or the metaphor of Ephesians 4. We're building up the body of Christ. And again, I just want to point out something that I think we often miss. The primary role of pastors or elders is equipping the saints. And the saints are doing the work of ministry, building up the body. And this is important because all too often, many in American Christianity have a picture of the local church where the pastor or the elders are almost like superheroes, at least one step down from that, as we're somehow supposed to have the bandwidth to engage in our own walk with the Lord, love our wives as Christ loved the church, take care of our kids, pointing them to Christ so we're not disqualified from ministry by way of our own family. Added to that, we need to find the 20 hours or so that it takes to prepare meaty, weighty sermons, not Saturday night specials, not sermonettes for Christianettes, as well as performing other, you know, equipping times, writing studies, engaging with people. Add to that being at the hospital every time a member is sick, chair every single meeting, respond to every single email, and you could go on and on and on. But see, not only is that impossible for anybody, no one can live up to that. But to the extent that someone might be able to or might try to, listen to me close, they would be robbing you, the saints, of your role of actually getting to do the work of ministry. If somebody or some team was just amazingly gifted and could do all of this or hire out pros to do it all, you, the saints who are gifted for ministry, would actually be robbed of the joy that it is taking part in the building up of the body. And it's so much healthier when we're actually all working together. But we do have to be clear, that's what we're doing. We must be clear that the biblical org chart says this is the way. Uh, uh, otherwise, when we don't have clarity there, the leadership gets emails or calls that no one cares about them, even though we believe they've been served very well by the saints, but we're told no one cares about them because the ministry given to them was not from specifically one of the pastors, one of the elders. And so we need to be clear. The pastors, the elders, Equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. This is how we work together. And church, this is how we can be effective even when we're beyond the 25 people or so that supposedly any one person can oversee personally, right? We can be effective even as we grow because gifted leaders equip gifted saints, and the gifted saints are actively engaging in the work of service and building up 
the body of Christ. And I want you to notice three results that come when gifted leaders are equipping gifted saints. They're on your outline, unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. Look back at the text. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Remember, Paul has already told us that in light of everything he taught in chapters 1 through 3, we are to walk or live in a manner worthy of our call. And the very first thing that he said was in keeping with walking worthily of our call, remember, was working hard to guard the unity that we were brought into. Well, no surprise then that he circles back to this emphasis and says that the first result of gifted leaders equipping gifted saints should be a unified body. Specifically here, the emphasis is the unity of the faith, or said differently, the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Start with this idea of the unity of the faith. Here, faith should be understood in the objective sense, right? That which is to be believed. You you might think of Jude 3, where he speaks of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, or earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 5, where he said, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The, The point then of this unity of the faith is that we are unified as a church in our doctrine, right? Through the equipping of pastors and teachers, the church understands and agrees upon core convictions of the historic Christian faith. That's why we have a statement of faith. I said a couple of weeks ago when we talked about unity, that this is not an example of what we see in culture so often, sort of unity for unity's sake, right, where we're unified basically around nothing, right? This is not an example of removing anything that we think might be off-putting to anyone, No. If you look down below, you actually see that a key reason for the importance of church leaders equipping the saints is because there has and will always be false teachings and thus false teachers, and so the church must be constantly equipped, constantly taught, so that we remain unified on real doctrine. We're unified on the historic Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And certainly part of that is our knowledge of the Son of God. Here you need to see in the text that the word unity governs both the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's as though he starts broad and that we must be unified in the historic Christian faith as a whole. And here he narrows it down sort of to our Christology in that a vital part of the historic Christian faith is that we're unified in our understanding of who is Jesus. 
And that's important because we need to keep in mind from the early church until now, there have always been false Jesuses. Let me say that again because it sounds strange. But in the early church, just as today, there have always been false Jesuses. Just because somebody says, I believe in Jesus, in no way means they are Christian. And you've got to be clear on that. The Jesus of the Bible was actually born a virgin. If you deny that, you are not a Christian. The Jesus of the Bible is the second person of the Trinity. The Jesus of the Bible is actually fully God and fully man. The Jesus of the Bible was perfect, never sinning, not once. The Jesus of the Bible actually died on a Roman cross, and he actually bore the punishment of every single person who would one day trust in him. The Jesus of the Bible actually rose from the dead, forever conquering death for his people. The Jesus of the Bible actually ascended back to the right hand of God the Father. The Jesus of the Bible calls his people to believe these realities with every fiber of our being. The Jesus of the Bible calls his people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and actually follow him. And let me just say, you might be here this morning and you've never come to faith in the Jesus of the Bible. You might come from a background where, yeah, you believed in Jesus and he was a good guy, you know, did some good stuff. We should sort of do what Jesus did, but that's not what Scripture says. You might be here and this is completely new to you. Regardless of where you're coming from, I would want to plead with you, look to this Jesus. Believe in Christ even today. For Christians, we do believe this. We're, we're, we're unified in this. Yes, there are times where through human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, some try to sneak in and, and, and get the church off course on these things. They want to they move the church away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But gifted saints are continually equipped by gifted leaders so as to stay unified. And what's more, as the leaders and the saints work together, the next result that we see here is maturity. We see this stated both positively and negatively. He says that through the leaders equipping the saints for the work of ministry and building up the body, we not only attain to the unity of the faith, but also to mature manhood, right? There, there's, there's a maturity that happens through this process. Now, this is interesting. This is actually the only time Paul speaks of the church as an adult male, as an adult man. And he's almost certainly doing this because of the contrast he's making between the positive, growing into mature manhood, something that's good, and the negative, being like a little child who's tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. I grew up 30 minutes from the beach, and I loved going to the beach as a kid, and I, and I vividly remember as a, as a child getting out in the waves, and boy, when the waves were strong, you would just get beat around, you know? You just had that picture of a child getting beat around by the waves, or, or this idea of being carried along. As we got older, we started to boogie board, and I can remember a number of times where we would get out in the water, and we'd just be playing and boogie boarding and having a good time, and then we'd get out, and we were a half mile down the beach because we, we were just carried along. And that's the picture Paul's painting of a child 
right? Being tossed around. No, no strength to stop that, carried along. What's more, consider the picture of, being, of, of, of a child being carried along by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, deceitful schemes. I trust we would all agree children are far easier to dupe than a mature adult, right? Sometimes we maybe even play with our kids and, and joke around with them because it's fun to watch how they believe things, but it's also a scary thought, and it's a thought that every parent who loves the Lord, who wants their children to look to Jesus, should, should take very seriously because they're regularly hearing things and they're regularly believing things, and it, it just paints that picture of how we need to be equipping. And, and, and that's what Paul is trying to paint for the church. The reason gifted leaders' primary responsibility is equipping is because it's needed all the time. It's because one of Satan's greatest tactics against the church is coming at the church through false teachings of every kind. Always has been, always will. Just get the church to believe a little heresy, or, or more subtly, get the church to maybe imbibe some cultural norms that are antithetical to the gospel and actually hinder the church and her mission. Or, or tying this to unity, get the church to start fighting over these things. At that point, you have an impotent church, don't you? On the flip side, gifted leaders are called to equip gifted saints so that they remain unified, grow up into maturity, and become more like Jesus. And that's the last point. You see that at the end of verse 13, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as well as verses 15 through 16, when he says, rather than being like an immature child carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, the church must confess the truth in love. And I think that's a better translation even than speaking the truth in love. Confess the truth in love and in so doing grow up in Christ. We confess the truth in love to one another and we grow up in Christ who is the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we work together, Paul's saying, as, as the gifted leaders equip the gifted saints and the gifted saints are engaging in the work of ministry and the building up of the body, we become more and more like Jesus every day, praise God. And as we wrap up on this, I think it's important, I've said this before, that we are clear as we study a passage like this, that all of this flows from the therefore at the beginning of chapter 4, right? The whole reason leaders want to be all about equipping the saints as to who Jesus is and what He's done is because He is who Paul has told us in chapters 1 through 3. We're reminded that outside of Christ, we don't have a chance. We're reminded that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The only thing we brought to the table was our own slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And yet God in His grace sent His Son. His Son accomplished everything He set out to accomplish. And as believers now, we want to live our lives out of the overflow of that. We want to live our lives celebrating that with leaders continually pointing us to that and one another building each other up in that, constantly saying, look to Christ, look to Christ as He grows us in maturity and in His own likeness for His glory. 
And so church, let's pray to that end. Let's pray that we'll take these things seriously and, and, and live out of the overflow of who Jesus is and what he has already done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how you speak to us and teach us, and I do pray for this church. Father, I thank you, just pivoting off of your word, I thank you for the gifts that you've given this church, the gifted saints, the gifts of leadership, and I pray that you would grow us in understanding how you've called us to live together and use us, Father, to honor and glorify you, to make much of Christ here in McKinney and, Lord willing, beyond. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.